When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The Indian Ocean often gets neglected in our discussions of geopolitics, global economics, international relations, often losing out to the Atlantic or the Pacific. Yet the Indian Ocean, covering about a third of humanity, is perhaps a better vehicle to understand how our world is changing. With no hegemon and an array of different states, governments, and economies, the world may look more like the Indian Ocean in the future. And of course, the Indian Ocean was where globalization perhaps first began, with traders sailing between the Gulf, South Asia, and Southeast Asia, spreading goods, cultures, and ideas. Beyond Liberal Order, Society, State Societies and Markets in the Global Indian Ocean, edited by Harry Verhoeven and Anatole Levin, studies the many places along the coasts of the Indian Ocean, ranging from countries as different as Singapore, Pakistan, and Somalia, to look at how our understanding of the post-Cold War world order doesn't quite match onto this part of the world. Harry Verhoeven is a senior research scholar at the Center on Global Energy Policy, School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. He is the convener of the Oxford University China Africa Network and a senior advisor at the European Institute of Peace. He is the author of Water, Civilization, and Power in Sudan, Why Comrades Go to War, and editor of Environmental Politics in the Middle East. Antal Levin is a senior fellow of the Quincy Institute at Responsible Statecraft in Washington, D.C., and was formerly a professor at Georgetown University in Qatar and King's College London. In the 80s and 90s, he worked as a British journalist in South Asia and the former Soviet Union, and as the author of several books on these regions, including Pakistan, a Hard Country. His most recent book, Climate Change and the Nation State, appeared in paperback in 2021. Today, the three of us talk about the Indian Ocean and how it challenges the way we think about international relations and the international system. So, Harry and Anatole, thank you so much for joining me today. Harry, maybe I'd like to start with a big picture question. You know, why talk about the Indian Ocean and what makes it different from, say, the Atlantic or the Pacific, two oceans that normally dominate our discussions of international relations? Well, thank you, first of all, Nicholas, for for having us. It's a real pleasure to be on this podcast uh, with you. Um, but it is indeed a very pertinent question. Why focus on the Indian Ocean rather on the, than on the North Atlantic or the Pacific, as is conventionally done in international relations? And it really stems from a, a deep-seated discontent um, with these conventional accounts of international order, of the ways in which states, societies, and markets relate to each other in a way that's described by conventional scholarship. 
Um, if you think about the world, not just in terms of countries or continents, but you think in terms of oceans, it immediately becomes apparent that whereas in the North Atlantic and in the Pacific, you have a clearly present hegemon today in the United States, which has really structured and institutionalized a lot of the international rules, the international organizations, the mechanisms for interaction between the various entities in quite a predictable and, and sustainable manner. You can think of NATO, you can think of NAFTA, the role played, of course, in creating the European Union, um, but also, of course, things like the US-Japan Defense Agreement, for example. In the case of the Indian Ocean, that simply isn't the case. You do have influence, and we're going to talk about that, by, exerted by the United States and by hegemonic forces. Um, but this kind of very dense pattern of interaction that is induced, if you like, by hegemon-stimulating cooperation and reintegration simply isn't, it simply isn't there. At the same time, we do know that the Indian Ocean world, both historically as well as today, is actually very closely integrated. You refer to it in the introduction. There are these extremely dense flows of people, of ideas, of cultural products um, that have been circulating between the various corners of the Indian Ocean, the Gulf, of course, and South Asia, but also Southeast Asia, Australia, uh, the eastern flank of, of Africa. Um, and this really presents a puzzle to many scholars of international relations. How do we account for such close patterns of of, of interaction um, that happen in such, a, in such a different manner, with such a different structural context. And that's one of the, the things that the book sets out to explore in different locations as well as in different time periods and to ascertain what that helps us understand about international relations today and hopefully as well tomorrow. Yes, I, I find the, the Indian Ocean, uh, I must say, I always have found it ever since I first went out to India as a student many years ago, uh, in many ways, the most fascinating of all the world's regions. And compared to the, uh, the Atlantic or the Pacific, one, I think one can almost say that the Indian Ocean is more like a, a, a giant version of the Mediterranean, you know, with very different societies and cultures uh, going back thousands of years, uh, but combined, of course, as Harry has said, with these very dense and uh, historically also very ancient patterns of economic linkage uh, and cultural cross-fertilization. Uh, so yes, I mean, in many ways, uh, the Indian Ocean, uh, both historically and today, is globalization in you know, is, is a case study for globalization, but a globalization whose effects and results are very different indeed from the standard paradigms or models which have been drawn up uh, it, it, since the, the latest uh, epoch of globalization began uh, by most Western scholars and observers and policymakers. That's actually a great segue to, to my next question which is, you know, the, the title of the book is Beyond Liberal Order, you know, looking that the Indian Ocean kind of goes beyond um, the way we understand the international system today. Um, but perhaps it's best to kind of start from there, which is kind of what, quote unquote, is the, is the liberal order, end quote. Um, and then kind of how does the structure of the Indian Ocean challenge that, again, quote unquote, liberal order? I understand, I understand the, the quotes are important when talking about the liberal order. Um, <laughs> no, they, they are. I mean, the way we understand liberal order in the book is to point out that indeed, as Anatole said, in the last 30, 40 years, conventional accounts of international relations usually 
argue that something fundamentally changed in international politics after 1945. That is to say that whereas traditionally accounts of international order focused on material preponderance, what international relations theorists would call primacy, that is to say this huge asymmetry between one or more great powers and others and then these great powers using their influence to structure the nature of the international system regardless of what other states or other societies think. The conventional accounts argues that in the case of the United States and to some extent before that the British Empire, um, this was done in a fairly consensual manner. That is to say, the United States accepted that its authority would be bound by various rules and institutions. It would be constrained. And in exchange for that, the United States ushered in a, an international order that has unprecedented legitimacy, and one that has been the most successful in terms of wealth creation, security provision, political progress, in the words, of course, of those theoreticians of, of liberal order. Now, we find that account... Uh, very impoverished. It may account for some parts of the world and some types of interactions. Um, but it does, even by the admission of many of the of the people writing in this vein, it has very little to say about Africa, about large parts of Asia, even about Latin America and the former Soviet Union. And it really begs the question, if you leave out about half the world or even more than half the world, what exactly is this global liberal order that you are referring to? And so that's why we, you know, in the book, try to rethink what we mean by liberal order. We're not arguing, of course, that um, the Pax Americana in terms of American military preponderance, the push for, for free markets, the push for democracy promotion are irrelevant. What we instead we're proposing is to think of liberal order or ideas of liberal order, not as something that is just... Um, uh, kind of one-way street of being pushed out from the West, but we in the, in the world of the Indian Ocean or the global Indian Ocean, as we call it, see this as an encounter. And we argue actually that many of the most consequential ideas and practices of what constitutes liberal order and liberalism have actually taken shape in that world through a, a confrontation and, a, and an encounter with the with the traditions and the, the patterns of, of historical interaction of the Indian Ocean world. To give a very quick example, ideas in the 19th century of what it means to think internationally were heavily influenced by the campaigns against slavery, against piracy, against sati, the immolation of, of widows in, in India. Those were absolutely crucial to understanding in the 19th century what liberalism meant in the same way that thinking about liberal today um, forces us to think about questions of development or so-called underdevelopment. And again, the Indian Ocean world has been a lot of the canvas on which many of these ideas have found their articulation. Uh, and when you, each of these, these, these ideas um, have been subverted, mediated, reinterpreted by various local actors. And so in the book, when we talk about beyond liberal, we're not arguing that there is nothing liberal about this world. But we are arguing it looks very different, from, of course, from the North Atlantic and the Pacific. And that in that difference, there are very, very important lessons and meaning that we can, that we can derive from that. And uh, just to add, uh, our book was, of course, um, written, edited and published before the present war in Ukraine. Uh, but um, what what is happening now is, I think, uh, you know, does match ra- in a rather interesting uh, way some of the things that we and the other authors said in the book, because there is this tremendous effort now, which of course goes back to b- before the, the the war, but has become even stronger since, uh, by uh, the Biden administration, but also by NATO and American allies in Europe to cast this as part of a global struggle between the liberal order, 
um, between liberal democracies and authoritarianism, and really to to frame the whole world in these terms. I, I have a an essay by Anne Applebaum for the Atlantic Monthly open in, in, in front of me on that score, and very much also to, to frame not just rivalry with, with Russia, but with China too, in these terms. Uh, but I mean, what, and this does indeed work to a certain extent within Europe, uh, but what we have seen since the war, uh, since the Russians launched their invasion, uh, has been a tremendous pushback against this by countries elsewhere in the world, including in the Indian, Indian Ocean region, and including countries uh, which uh, were not only cast by the United States as strategic partners, but in many ways uh, did want to be strategic partners of the United States, but on their terms. Uh, on their terms, not only uh, when it came to maintaining their own strategic autonomy, in other words, a partnership with the United States, but not a subordinate alliance, as one finds in Europe or or, or Central America, Uh, but also, of course, the desire to maintain uh, complete autonomy when it comes to domestic political development and the shape you know, of the domestic, political and ideological order. And of course, the biggest example of this by far is India, uh, which uh, has refused to uh, support America unconditionally in the war in Ukraine. Uh, The Indian public opinion has actually taken a very, very strong anti-American stance often in this war, precisely because of, you know, an old, old anger in India at being lectured to, patronized, uh, you know, dictated to, as the Indians would say, by the United States. Uh, And, um, of course, the the Modi government, an elected government, but, I mean, clearly its its idea of what India is in cultural, political terms and its agenda uh, is very different indeed from uh, Western you know, liberal models. And so I think, uh, you know, what, what the, the, the Ukraine war and the international reaction to it outside Europe has really emphasized uh, has been the, 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 the immense complexity uh, of international relations uh, in the Indian Ocean region, but the Indian Ocean region as an example of the wider world and the grave limitations of trying to cram this region and and indeed other regions uh, into paradigms drawn up uh, in by the establishment in Washington. I think I have, I have one more big picture question, and let's maybe start getting into into some details. Um, but Harry, can you frame the Indian Ocean kind of around this idea of something called thin hegemony? And I wonder if you might kind of flesh that idea out a bit more. Kind of what what does it mean that that I guess there isn't a, a, I guess a quote unquote, like normal hegemon in the Indian Ocean. Um, what makes it a, a thin hegemony? Well, so the interesting thing indeed, uh, when you look at the Indian Ocean through this kind of long durée lens, going all the way back to what some scholars refer to as archaic globalization, but then also, again, the British Empire and the realities of a Pax Americana after 1945 and indeed after 1989, is that the most successful instances, if you like, of any kind of international hierarchy is where you do have some kind of hegemon like the British Empire or America today, but where it consciously decides to actually do very little. 
It may help to ensure freedom of navigation. It may help to promote certain economic ideas like laissez-faire or sound money, what today we would probably call the Washington Consensus or free market economics. Um, but not a whole lot more than that. It may provide a number of what we call club goods, so that's regime security to certain allies of the United States or energy security. But this is not a hegemon that actually fundamentally tries to change the domestic character or is very successful when it tries to change the domestic character of many of these states, of these polities, of these societies around the Indian Ocean world. Because whenever that has happened historically, there has been, as Anatole just referred to, quite spectacular pushback. So what you have in this Indian Ocean world is an extraordinary degree of heterogeneity and durable heterogeneity. And what this does through this lens of thin hegemony is challenge conventional accounts once again of liberal order that predict that the domestic and international foundations of liberal order will come to increasingly look alike. What that means is that if you have liberal states, that you're likely to have a liberal order. And the more liberal that international order is, the more the states over time will come to resemble one another. Again, not what we see in the Indian Ocean world at all. Uh, in the book, we give many examples of this. But for example, what is understood as democracy in the Indian Ocean, places like South Africa or Singapore or Pakistan, looks so resoundingly different from what many people understand in Scandinavia or Western Europe or the United States. And we argue is likely to continue to look very different. Then we have to take this into account. And again, so you know, understanding this, this through this lens of, of thin hegemony, where you do have a superpower present that, you know, as I said, structures a number of public goods and international interactions, but certainly does not succeed, nor often does it aspire to get these different units to assimilate and to look alike. That, we argue, is very important for the world of tomorrow. Again, to make to come to, to Anatol's point he just raised about the war in Ukraine, India has indeed been, been, been very critical of this. But so, of course, have some of the Gulf states, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, also has South Africa. These are all three very different states with very different historical trajectories, historical relations with the United States. But what they agree on is that it's very problematic to phrase this in this kind of binary lens with, you know, you either fully join this liberal order or you fully reject it. What they're saying in many ways is that there are certain bits and pieces we like, we can subvert and we can work with as we have long done. And there are other pieces that are really very difficult for us, whether at the international level or domestic level. And that, we argue, is where the real, I think, um, uh, takeaways are for what the world tomorrow may look like in a context where U.S. power has been declining for a very long time and is unlikely to go completely away. That's not what we're arguing, but no longer to have this kind of unique preponderance it had perhaps after 1989. Um, the Indian Ocean may well tell us something about what other parts of the world, perhaps increasingly the Pacific world, might look like. Um, and again, we hope that that's, that that's of interest to, to people interested in international relations and different understandings of, of regions around the world. So for my next question, and maybe um, Anatole can take, take the first stab at this, um, obviously this is, an, this is a collection of different essays from contributors, um, and I'm not going to ask you to kind of put words in the contributors' mouths, um, but kind of what were some of the examples uh, brought up through the analysis, the research, the conclusions of your contributors that, you know, really stick out to you and kind of how we should understand the Indian Ocean. Um, it, the book covers a lot of different areas from Pakistan and Bangladesh, Singapore, the Horn of Africa, um, the Gulf states. But kind of what were some of the examples and conclusions that people made that really jumped out at you as you were editing this volume? Well, one of the, the, the fascinating things about uh, editing and also, of course, contributing uh, to this uh, this volume 
was the interaction and, you know, in, in terms of study also, the, to, to a degree, the tension between, on the one hand, studying these deep, present, but also historically rooted connections through the region uh, in terms of trade, economics, culture, migration, and how this fits into patterns of globalization today. In other words, you know, uh, a, a, a subset of globalization um, in general, but with a, a very specific cast in this region. But also, uh, it, of course, since w- we are dealing with uh, a, a region dominated by post-colonial states overwhelmingly, uh, or if not states directly ruled uh, by the West, then, of course, states that had to react and fundamentally reshape themselves in, in response to Western uh, political, military and economic uh, imperialism or imperial globalization. And so what you're also looking at in this region uh, is a, a range of state building, or if you look at somewhere like Iran or Thailand, state restoration projects. So on the one hand, and of course, this is not a tension which is specific in itself to the Indian Ocean region, you have globalization and regionalization. Uh, on the other you have a range of different nationalisms. And I think one theme that runs uh, through uh, several of the different essays in the book uh, is indeed its state building and the creation or mobilization of different forms of nationalism in the service of state building. And throughout this region, you know, for very understandable uh, historical, colonial, but also contemporary reasons, there are deep anxieties and insecurities about the state. You know, there are deep feelings that the state is a much more fragile thing than we understand uh, in the West. Uh, And um, therefore that, you know, does need strengthening, strengthening economically, militarily, but also ideologically in terms of nationalism. And then, of course, uh, in the context of the the study of nationalism, what this also brings out uh, is the immensely different range of nationalisms one can see in this region and in the world today, the different elements that go to make them up uh, in in terms of religious culture, for example, and how this is mobilized in in different countries. Uh, But also, of course, um, from the point of view of the study of nationalism and state building, uh, a, a tremendous range uh, of relative success and failure in the region. And the final point, I think, is um, from you know when when it comes to the study of of democracy or democratization. Uh, in this region too, you have a you know a, a wide range compared to to, to Europe um, or, or or even South America. Uh, from you know relatively co- complete democracies, if one wants to view it in this perhaps rather simplistic way, through uh, a, a great range of, of semi democracies and managed democracies, but in you know in 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 quite different ways between different countries, to of course some pretty determined and full scale authoritarian systems. So I think that from you know all these different intellectual points of view. Um, This was, I must say, a fascinating book to edit. Uh, And um, I I, I hope we'll 
you know, help help to cast light on several different areas, uh, not not just of area studies, but also of wider uh, academic studies, nationalism, state building, democracy, and so on. Perhaps to give one very quick example, uh, Nicholas, um, in, the, in the book, there's a, I think, brilliant chapter on Singapore, um, which is which is which is written by by Chua Ben Huat of National University of Singapore. Very fortunate to have him have him join the collection, and really cast Singapore as this illiberal prodigy of liberal order. That is to say that the Singapore experiment, this extraordinary story of the last. 50, 60 years, on the one hand, has been very strongly enabled, of course, by what we understand to be liberal order, the role of the US Navy in doing so, economic globalization, foreign investment, international trade, and yes, ideas about, you know, Western ideas of, of rule of law and party politics, etc. But at the same time, as Shua ben points out in his chapter, continuously flouts all these rules and these interpretations of liberal order in the way it operates economically. This is by no means a laissez-faire state in the way it very carefully tries to balance different uh, states and great powers in the region in the way, of course, it's democracy, as Anatole rightly said, is rather different from the kind of practices that we see in North America or in Western Europe. And so Singapore really comes as this hybridity. You cannot understand it without reference to liberal order, but nor can you understand it just through that lens. And again, it's, it, it really brings out, I think, what we, what we, when, when, when we say that we understand liberal order as this encounter between different worlds rather than as a kind of unilateral export from one part of the world to another. That's what we mean by, by really rethinking a lot of this. Another great example Anatole can talk about in greater detail is that of, of Pakistan and the, uh, the fantastic chapter by, by Shandana Mohman on um, what democracy actually looks like in a number of villages in the, in, in the Punjab. So she uses you know, her, her detailed micro-level study over many years of electoral practices in the rural Punjab as a kind of prism to explore the ways in which languages and practices of democracy from liberal order are used or cannibalized and put at the service of various projects and the ways in which that excludes some people but also empowers others in a way that is genuinely different from what happened before. So again, we're not trying to say that this Indian Ocean is some kind of time warp, this kind of frozen in time, which unfortunately a lot of the historical literature tends to do and tends to romanticize this part of the world. We're saying this is an extraordinary dynamic part of the world and again, the interaction with liberal order is very varied, very complex, and very nuanced. Um, and again, we can talk about other chapters, but those two in particular, I think, the Pakistan and Singapore examples, bring that out very, very eloquently. Yes, I, I actually wanted to add that about Shandana's uh, chapter, uh, which you know I, I know Pakistan pretty well myself. I, I I thought was fascinating on that score, because yes, I mean, rather than this simplistic model, which unfortunately one you know, reads rather often in the academic literature, let alone the journalistic literature, you know, of a past dominated by feudalism and military control. And then against that, you have modern democratization. As Harry has said, you actually get from uh, Shandana's uh, essay, uh, this picture of how, you know, on the one hand, patronage, for example, remains central absolutely central to politics in Pakistan at the national and the local level. Kinship remains of great importance. Local big men, you know, not uh, traditional princely feudal leaders, but new political bosses 
uh, are of key importance. But this does at the same time uh, allow ordinary people a considerable degree of agency in pursuing their own uh, local goals for development, for benefits from the state, uh, but um, very much also collective goals rather than individual ones. You know, that is to say, of course, they're looking for individual jobs in the state, uh, but they are also expected to uh, distribute the benefits of those jobs to uh, their own, well, particularly kinship groups. So a very complex and fascinating picture uh, in which there are real elements of democracy, um, and there are uh, real elements, once again, as Harry has said, not, not in any way frozen from the past, uh, but certainly you know, things that do not operate as you know, standard Western democratic, at least idealized models would have it. So, you know, we haven't, you know, it, we haven't talked a lot about um, probably, and although it's debatable, probably the the biggest country um in the region the one that uh would probably like to be seen as a hegemon but also is very uncomfortable with distinction um which is india you know um how does india fit into the way we should understand the indian ocean and maybe south asia in particular maybe anatol can take this question because i because I, I know you talk about india a lot in your in your conclusion well, something that struck me from you know the, the very first moment I, I set foot in Delhi as a um, as a student, you know, way way back when India was much much poorer uh, and more peripheral in global um, geopolitical terms than it is today, was the fact that nonetheless there was this deep deep sense in the elites uh, in in Delhi and among educated Indians more generally uh, that India is a great power and one pole of a multipolar world. And that you know, comes from, uh, I think, essentially two different routes, um, or maybe three. Uh, the, the first is, of course, the it, going back to more ancient history, the tremendous cultural impact of India uh, on uh, the region, at least the region eastwards from India, uh, the enormous impact of Hinduism, obviously, on culture in Southeast Asia, uh, and uh, and Indonesia, uh, and uh, of course, of um, once again going back to ancient times of uh, Indian trading communities, you know, through, throughout the region, uh, and then, uh, but th- th- then, of course, th- this uh, from an India from a Hindu nationalist point of view becomes very ambiguous because then again, the unification of India, politically speaking, and the grand images of power and authority in India uh, come from two non-Hindu roots, the first being the Mughal Empire, the Muslim Empire, of course, and then uh, perhaps even more the British Empire, which of course did not just uh, unify the Indian subcontinent, but also to a considerable extent in political and economic terms uh, for perhaps a a relatively brief but enormously influential period, uh, did unite the entire Indian Ocean region under British hegemony. But British hegemony, it should be remembered, very much based in India um, and uh, resting on Indian soldiers and resting to a very considerable extent also still on uh, Indian trading communities and banking communities, you know, in the region. 
So there is this, uh, and also simply, as you say, because of the the you know, India with you know now 1.3 billion people, by far the largest state, not just in the region, but of course by now the biggest um, uh, biggest state in terms of population in the world. So this tremendous sense that India must be one pole of a multipolar world and must have great influence in the Indian Ocean region. But uh, on the other hand, of course, uh, wise uh, Indians know that just as they, as a former colonized territory, reacts very badly indeed at you know attempts at neo-colonialism, so any very you know tough and overt Indian attempt to exert this sort of quasi-imperial hegemonic influence in the Indian Ocean region uh, pr- produces automatic pushback, you know, from from other states, uh, and and uh, India's economic weight is also still not sufficient, you know, really to support such an agenda. So you have a a, a, a very mixed picture, I think, um, of ambition, uh, also, of course, increasingly of fear fear of China's growing uh, influence, you know, and presence. Uh, but and at the same time of of caution and a a recognition of the the, the need to show uh, full respect for other countries. Uh, of course, there is then one specific problem for India, which is that you know India's ambitions, I think, would be uh, a lot more successful if it you know if it they were not blocked by Pakistan. You know, Pakistan is this tremendous. Uh, you know, obstacle in India's region to Indian power, uh, which is one reason why, although um, you know, Indians uh, sometimes like to to declare, uh, sometimes with almost comical um, you know determination that that Pakistan is 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 really not important to them. In fact, Pakistan is important to them and and hangs round their neck. Uh, in a way that they find find profoundly irritating. Perhaps very very quickly to add one thing, you know, um, as I'll refer to the sensitivities that exist in India. In the book, we have a fantastic chapter uh, by Thomas Bon Hansen of Stanford University, which unpacks um, the longevity of the thinking of, pra- of variegated practices around what sovereignty constitutes and why sovereignty is such a big deal in this part of the world, yet it's perhaps understood in a, in a, in a relatively different manner. And this is, of, of course, you know, particularly when it comes to this international relations discussion about India, very important, because on the one hand, India is indeed very sensitive, as that all underlines to ideas of, of, of Western hegemony and Western liberal hegemony, as many other states are. But there was many of those very same sensitivities that India, or apprehensions that India has about the global level, of course, many states. Uh, as Anatol rightly says, have about India's potential weight. And so um, in the book, again, in various chapters, we, we wrestle with these questions of what is what is sovereignty? What does it mean? Um, why does this region give a particular expression to these ideas? What are the historical bases for this? And what may that mean going forward uh, for the future? So my next question, and maybe Anatol can start with this one too, um, so the uh, the hot new term in U.S. strategic discourse is the quote unquote Indo-Pacific. Um, 
there has been a lot of debate about that term, whether or not it's even a real thing. <laughs> um, but but let's say, but let's divorce it from its use in American policy. You know, is there something to the term? Is it a useful framing device, or is it purely just, I guess, diplomatic fluff? Well, there's a, a, a very interesting chapter on that by Rana Mitter uh, in the book, who who discusses precisely this, and. I mean, certainly in economic historical terms, it's not uh, entirely uh, fluff. You know, if you uh, travel in Kerala in southern India, for example, uh, the historical presence of Chinese merchants there is is very marked. And uh, well, you know, if you look at the travels of Marco Polo and others in the um, in the Middle Ages, Ibn Battuta, uh, you have. Uh, trading networks that span the entire region. If you know the history of um, Guangzhou, what we used to call Canton uh, in India, uh, an Arab trading population there, uh, going back to the Tang dynasty or possibly even before. Uh, so there are these links, uh, but um, the it is, I think, in contemporary, uh, certainly US terms, um, and I think to a considerable degree, Indian terms as well. Uh, it reflects US and Indian agendas, but which depend in their turn on actually exaggerating Chinese agendas in, in the region. Uh, because you, you have this you know, attempt to portray the Chinese as you know, building military bases everywhere and you know, extending their strategic presence. Actually, the Chinese have been extremely cautious about that. Uh, one sees this you know, in, in the Persian Gulf, where Harry and I lived uh, for um, uh, many years and worked together at Georgetown University there, uh, where China, of course, is you know, expanding its links and is he- heavily dependent uh, on energy from the Persian Gulf, but has done very little actually to exploit the many opportunities that you know American failures in the region could have given China uh, for a much stronger presence. Uh, interestingly, China has often been uh, quite happy to allow Russia to push itself forward against America and take the resulting heat and damage. Uh, so I think. Um, you know, there is a rather familiar uh, attempt to build up the Chinese menace, in fact, you know, so as to strengthen the US and Indian uh, position. Uh, I, I think from that point of view, um, something that um, parts of our, our book try to, to bring out is is the fact that geography still matters. You know, the... Um, the South China Sea is called the South China Sea for a reason, and the Indian Ocean is called the Indian Ocean for a region for a reason. And um, the, uh, the the Chinese Navy in the Indian Ocean uh, would find itself, in fact, uh, strategically in a virtually impossible position uh, in, in the event of serious conflict with um, with the US and India. It's also very notable in the case of Pakistan that uh, China's uh, economic agenda there has been, and strategic agenda, has been much more limited uh, than it is portrayed, uh, actually portrayed by the Pakistanis and by the Indians and by the Americans, and has also been a great deal less successful. Uh, I think from that point of view, the example of Pakistan also 
demonstrates that outside development projects and paradigms, whether they are designed in Washington at the IMF and the World Bank, or perhaps in Beijing, you know, along the lines of, you know, Chinese state-led economic development, uh, you know, may very well simply not work or not work as they were intended to work in other parts of the world, you know, even in uh, countries uh, that are regarded as close strategic partners or allies. Um, There is a real disconnect, you know, between, and always has been, if you look at America, you know, um, America's experience of international development during the Cold War, but a real disconnect between the desire for strategic partnership and the ability actually to reshape economies and societies internally. That's been true of us. I think it's true of the Chinese as well. Yeah, that's precisely the, the message that, that comes across very strongly in, in, in Rana's outstanding chapter. You know, Rana points out you know, all these vulnerabilities and, and these these hesitations, these apprehensions that Anatol's talking about. And he points out that, you know, um, it's, of course, always very dangerous, especially for historians, perhaps, to try to predict the future. Uh, but that nonetheless, he his, 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 his gut feeling is the Chinese actually pretty comfortable with this kind of tradition of, of thin hegemony, this kind of extraordinary heterogeneity of various forms of political and social order around the Indian Ocean, um, and that this idea of a of a hegemony that, that delivers a very limited amount of, of public goods actually works very well, and continues to will continue to work very well for the for the objectives of that that, that, that communist China continues to um, to pursue, and so that in that sense is it's pushing it back against you know. What the Indo-Pacific, of course, as a geopolitical term today, is supposed to do, which is really kind of um, the intellectual scaffolding for a new Cold War and everything that that, that entails. And I'll refer to the, um, you know, to the way in Washington uh, there are these attempts at at creating this very stark divide between different worlds and different ideas of of order. Again, the Indian Ocean, including the encounter between U.S. and Chinese interests in that world, shows you how much more complicated and nuanced that picture really is. And Rana's chapter again, as well as, as well as some of the others. For example, the work of Mike Waldemarium, who deals with ideas of of self determination in the Indian Ocean space, but the, the ways in which the U.S. is very comfortable from the very illiberal interpretations of that on the ground shows that, that many of the convergences are sometimes more important than the divergences. Yes, one one could also mention in that regard um, William Reno's uh, essay uh, on uh, interventionism. You know, intervention and order in in failed states, and uh, the um, unfortunately very very limited success of uh, you know this form uh, of attempted Western uh, hegemony in this region as in other regions. So I think for my last question, and maybe maybe Harry can go first on this um, to kind of bring it back to to the Indian Ocean and how it should affect our understanding of international relations. You know, if we do take into account the Indian Ocean, um, both its past and its present, how do you think it will improve our understanding of how the international system works, how international relations work, um, especially going into the future, you know, to kind of jump off of Barry's point about it being difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. Um, but, but if we do take the Indian Ocean's history and its present day into account, how do you think that will affect the way we understand international relations? 
Well, it's a, it's a very important question, and it's it's of course one of the reasons why we why we put together this this volume comes coming from this discontent, as we said, with this extremely and enduringly Eurocentric way of understanding the history of international relations need international relations theory. Um, if you want, this book is an attempt at contributing what we might call global international relations, that is to take to take the experiences, the ideas, the encounters of other parts of the world equally seriously and not to see the world as this kind of uh, result of an, of an exogenous or kind of unilateral export of certain ideas and certain practices, but in many more ways as, a, as an encounter. And I think that's both useful indeed for historical uh, purposes and for describing the present, but even more so for the for the future. Um, because I think as we as we construct these different understandings and try to amplify perspectives and voices that haven't always been heard or taken seriously, that have often been lazily dismissed, um, we also open up, uh, I think, avenues for greater understanding and actually reduce, uh, one would hope, the likelihood of fundamental misunderstanding, of miscommunication, of misinterpretation of intentions, which, of course, is often a very dangerous thing in politics and particularly in international relations. So, um, again, by by highlighting these shades of grey, historically as well as today, as I said, by highlighting some of the convergences rather than the divergence and pushing back against this idea of some kind of inevitable Cold War, some kind of inevitable power transition clash, as so many theorists in Washington, but as well as we said, also in Beijing or in Moscow are sometimes keen to do, I think um, we're hopefully helping to contribute to making space, um, not just in theoretical terms, but in practical terms for, for greater dialogue, for greater in, in mutual understanding. Um, and that's really what the book, uh, I think, you know, aspires to do. And readers will have to tell us whether we've, we've been successful in doing so. I entirely agree with that. I would only add that all too often globalization has been seen as, you know, a, a force that, you know, overcomes nation states, reduces their power, reduces their identity. But I think what really comes out of the Indian Ocean as well, as, as we know, very well from 19th century Europe, uh, is that globalization also stimulates nationalism. And uh, central to an understanding of this region and many other parts of the world as well is the fundamental importance of local nationalisms. As worked upon, of course, by globalization, uh, neither present Shia nationalism in India nor Hindu in Iran nor Hindu nationalism in India uh, or really anything else uh, in, in this region would look the, uh, at all the same without the impact of globalization. But of course, this has produced radically different responses in different countries, but all of them in their different ways nationalist, all about local identities uh, in the service of local state building or state strengthening projects. So I think that is another uh, thing that comes out from, uh, I hope comes out from, from this volume and from several of the, of the different um, uh, essays uh, in it. So I think that's a great place to enter, enter interview with Harry Verhoeven and Anatole Levin, editors of Beyond Liberal Order, State, Societies, and Markets in the Global Indian Ocean. I actually have some real last questions, um, which is in... Harry can go first, and then Anatole, which is, uh, where can people find your work, and uh, what's the next project? 
Well, the, the book is, is now available around the world. Um, in, in Asia, Europe and Africa, I think it's being disseminated by, by Hearst in the Americas, by, by Oxford University Press. So hopefully in, in, a, in a good bookshop or, of course, online uh, directly with the publishers or with other commercial vendors, the book should be, should be easy to, uh, uh, to, to find. Um, as to my, my own work and the, the next project, I mean, there's, there's really two things I'm, I'm currently working on. Uh, one is, and again, mostly in, in developing countries in, in Africa and parts of Asia, it's to try to better understand the links between climatic changes and debt problems and the way that is going to influence the policy autonomy, the ability to take decisions for some of the, the world's poorest and most marginalized um, societies. And the other project, uh, one that I've been working on for a number of years, it's very specific, it's been outside the Asian region, um, it focuses very much on Ethiopia. Um, Ethiopia is a, uh, Africa's second most populous country, um, which in the last 30 years has undertaken a pretty extraordinary experiment in state building and in trying to change its place in the world economy as well as um, in international relations. And the book tries to understand that both in its own terms, try to tell that story of Ethiopia, um, as well as to try to shed light on what that tells us about African states within uh, international relations and in international uh, order. So those are, are the two things I'm I'm currently very very busy with. Well, as for me, I'm afraid uh, as you know, a, spe- a specialist, also a specialist on, on Russia and the former Soviet Union. I, I have simply been you know buried by, of course, response to this ghastly war in Ukraine. Uh, but um, w- when, if ever, um, you know this 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 conflict comes to an end. Uh, I intend to focus uh, to a considerable extent uh, in the near future on, uh, once again, the role of nationalism in the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, uh, and the complex way in which this has uh, interacted with Western economic um, and political agendas, uh, and uh, Russian and other responses to this. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to interviewbooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find council author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. Uh, the ARB podcast is on all favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends. If you want to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us with an interview with uh, Beat Scott, author of Too Far From Antibes. But before then, Harry, Anatole, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks a lot. You're very welcome, and thanks for having giving us the opportunity. <laughs>